Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransom Tart Podcast. If you are just tuning in to us, we have been enjoying three weeks of some Advent reflections, and this is the fourth week in Advent. Christmas is just around the corner, and we lit all four candles on our Advent wreath last night as a family as we were saying our bedtime prayers. We're going to pick up again with the second half of chapter 10 in Beautiful Outlaw because it's just so good to bring before us the reality of the incarnation, the humility and just the stunning beauty of Jesus taking on a genuine humanity. So we're going to pick up with that and then share some thoughts at the end. Jesus sees that he's being followed, and in his typical fashion, he simply says, Can I help you? Smiling, head cocked, eyebrows raised. They must have been flummoxed, like you would be, because they ask the lamest question, Where are you staying? That's the question kindergartners ask one another on the first day of school. Where do you live? Jesus disarms their fumbling awe by saying, Come and see. Not, Oh, here and there. Not, Oh, over on the other side of town. Come on, I'll show you humble and inviting. Andrew races off to find Peter, Philip runs to get Nathaniel, and the little band begins to coalesce. They wander up to Galilee, where Jesus taps James and John. None of them know it yet, but they will become the most famous band of brothers in the world. Thus, Jesus starts his ministry. We've all heard the story and missed the miracle. God begins his greatest work by including us. Even though we bungled it so badly the first time back in Eden, once again, he shares in the excitement, come with me, you have a part in this, the recreation of the world. Can you name one world leader who has done anything even close to this? What were the names of Buddha's disciples? Gandhi's, George Washington's, Apart from a few history buffs, none of us can name even one. But everyone who hears about Jesus hears about the Twelve, and can probably name Peter, Matthew, James, and John, certainly Judas. Jesus and his disciples go hand in hand, right here from the start. He acts like it's not all about him. He shares the stage, shares the spotlight. He shares his glory. I have given them the glory. That you gave me, John seventeen twenty two. He even shares his suffering, the crown of thorns, the cross. Is this not the noblest part of his whole life, the very thing we worship him for? Even in this, he offers to us the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, Philippians three ten. It is an honor I cannot begin to fathom. Once chosen, Jesus then needs to disciple these fishermen, tax collectors, and political revolutionaries who drop their careers to follow him. I'm not sure we've understood the ramifications of his decision. We just think, oh yeah, the disciples, and forget what was actually required for them to become apostles. This is going to take a lot of work. There's no fairy godmother waving her wand here. These pumpkins don't just turn into coaches. To show you just what sort of patience and long-suffering it took to train these knuckleheads, 
Let's drop in on two private conversations Jesus has with his apprentices. I love it that these were recorded for posterity. This first one takes place maybe a day after the boys helped Jesus feed a crowd of 4,000 using seven loaves and a few small fish. It cracks me up that small is underscored as if it would have been easier with a few large fish. They personally handed out the bread that kept multiplying in their hands. They gathered up the seven basketfuls afterward. As they head out of town, Jesus has another run-in with the religious leaders, those sanctified Machiavellis, and he's getting pretty sick of it. They demand from him a sign. Jesus says they're not going to get one. Then he turns and warns the boys about the infectious corruption of the religious haze. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed it among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Matthew 16, 5 through 7. How many of these little whispered asides take place between the disciples over the years? Simon, what do you think he meant by that? This one is priceless. Somebody whispers, he's mad at us because we forgot to bring bread. Okay, even if Jesus was talking about bread, how could they possibly worry about bread anymore? They've seen Jesus handle that problem with staggering ease. Yesterday. But Jesus didn't mention bread. How did they make the jump from a warning about the fungus of the Pharisees to what are we going to do for dinner? It is quite a leap of logic, a jump not even evil Knievel could make. Oh, Jesus, how many times does a man have to explain himself? He clearly sounds frustrated. I love the next line. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith? Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Aware of their discussion? Did they not notice he was in the same boat when they started this little whispered debate? Jesus goes on, Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, now we get it. You were talking about their teaching. Honestly. Sometimes these guys seem thick as an engine block. This second anecdote takes place as Jesus is now making his way toward Jerusalem for the final showdown. He sends an advance team before him to secure a night's lodging in a Samaritan town, but the door is slammed in their face. Furious, they return to Jesus with the report chomping for revenge. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And then they went on to another village. Well, they certainly get credit for passion. We'll give them an A for zeal. But as for comprehension, 
they get an F. For heaven's sake, these guys had front-row seats for the Sermon on the Mount, got private lessons on it afterward. For nearly three years now, they have had Jesus as their personal tutor. No, fellas, we're not going to be torching villages. This isn't Sherman's march to the sea. Let's try this again. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Talk about exasperating. How does Jesus put up with these numbskulls? It's like training the hobbits to run a country. It proves his humility is genuine, though. I mean, anybody can fake this for a while. To be a crowd-drawing teacher can be a rather heady experience. All eyes looking to you for the next bit of wisdom to drop from your lips. It's easy to be gracious when you're adored. But when your class keeps missing the point challenging you, running down rabbit trails, changing the subject, misunderstanding, breaking out into a brawl, that's when your character is exposed. I never really saw the endurance of this. I think the shining brilliance of what Jesus is teaching has obscured the process involved here, all that this required of him. We've become so used to Jesus being gracious and kind and patient, we miss the humility of it. Well, we're going to pause there in hopes that here in the fourth week of Advent, these thoughts on the humility of Jesus coming to earth and taking on a genuine humanity, the reality of how real his humanity was, and may I add, is, Jesus is still Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, just causes you uh, greater joy, greater wonder, and and greater intimacy with Christ here in Advent. What are you looking forward to Christmas more, John? More and more over the years, it's the simple joys of being together with family and friends. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the tree. We have a tradition of waffles, Dad makes waffles on Christmas morning. So we have some sweet traditions, but more and more, I'm sounding like an old guy now. It's just being together. Uh (laughs) But it's true. It's true. Just the the joy in that. Uh And you? This is going to be different uh, because of my uh, health, uh, my immune system. Um, It's going to be a kind of a Christmas in flux. Uh, We're going to be out of town. We're not going to have a tree. We're not going to have any of the decorations. And and the the actual day will depend on my health and the health of the family. So it's kind of Christmas on the road, which, which there's something beautiful about that as well, just finding Christmas in very different circumstances. Mm, very disruptive. Yeah. May it be beautiful for you. Yes, thank may, you. May it be beautiful. And friends, our earnest Christmas yes. prayer is that it is beautiful for you as well. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances this week, mm. may Jesus come. May he come to you. May he be with you in this Christmas celebration. From your friends at Ransomed Heart, I'm John Eldridge, and always, for more, come to us at RansomedHeart.com. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.